Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. production. So hi. Hello. Hi. Very hectic day for me. You look like you're okay. very much at peace there in the woods. Good. That's um, that is the point. I'm having a nice day. Yeah, and you and you're staying in one place for a little bit, right? Yeah, I'll be here all month. I'm on uh, the Orcas, O R C A S, islands in uh, Washington. Are you are Last you specifically time. on Orca, or are you on one Orcas. of the other ones? Orcas with an S. Um, no, that's the island that I'm on. Yeah. And uh, last time we did our podcast, I was going to get on the ferry with Hope. And I did that. And I, uh, it was very tight. And I took off a, a light coming off. Oh, bummer. On somebody, else's, um, on somebody else's car or yours? No, on Hope, on her, on her booty, on the tail end of her. Um, oh. So I got to get that fixed. Like I need one more thing to fix on her. Um She's wounded. She's wounded. Um, but it was very beautiful coming over. Uh, you could you could go on the outer deck and uh, really lovely. And it rains less here than um, other parts of Washington, but it's quite chilly. So it's about uh, 55 degrees during the day and it gets down to about 40 something at night. So this California girl is brr, cold. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I was in Bozeman and I did my breach conference. Um, yeah, I saw the pictures. They were great. Yeah, and it was it was perfect fall weather. I just I I sort of we live in Los Angeles. You forget that. I mean, yes, we sort of have fall here, but if you blink, you miss it. Totally. So, <laughs> yeah, there the colors were changing. It was really nice, and we had an amazing electrical storm here, um, which we almost never have. And it came at night. And if yeah. you saw it on Instagram, you saw people who got pictures of it, and it was. Pretty, pretty impressive. It's something that we, you know, in Southern California, we rarely get. But I don't want to talk a lot about the weather because we got a ton of topics today. And our first, and our, our subject today is going to be um, first round of prenatal labs, right? The first trimester lab. Yeah. The reason that we are getting into that is because we did have a mom who asked us, she's had eight babies and all with midwives. And the, some I, uh, are with the same midwife and our practice. And she just said, you know, she felt like she's with the same partner. She's with the same midwife. Can she decline these tests? So we just wanted to go over them and talk about informed consent and, and why we might do them. So that's, that's where that topic came from. And speaking about the weather, which we don't want to talk about and being outside, <laughs> being outside in the elements, we have a new uh, partner for the Birthing Instincts podcast, and that's Element. And that's yeah. actually spelled L-M-N-T. And Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt and no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And it's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low carb or paleo diet. Like it me. Contains... Oh, did you say something? Like like me, that's the, it fits right into me not um, having sugar. So I, I love them. They're actually really great because they don't have, they're, they're more salty than sweet. So, um, and it's electrolytes are great 
for pregnant women, I often recommend them if I find that they are still dehydrated, even though they're um, reporting that they're drinking the right amount of water. So you can just do a little bit of um, sea salt, but these are tasty. They've got all kinds of flavors. Um, so I'm so excited that they decided to partner with us. Yeah. And you like it because it's got none of the junk. It's got no sugar, the- no coloring. Yeah. No artificial, no gluten, no artificial ingredients, no fillers, no BS, as we like to say on the uh, Birthing Instincts podcast. That fits and right in. We're no BS. We no are no BS. BS. And you can go to our custom uh, URL. It's drinklmnt.com slash birthing instincts. Again, drinklmnt.com slash birthing instincts. We love that you support our partners. And so all our listeners, if you haven't tried it, at least try it. See what you think. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's the LMNT commercial. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Me, I'm a professional podcaster. For eight years, I never had uh, sponsors. So it's, it's sort of a new thing for me. We're doing great. I'm enjoying doing it. Great. Okay. Yeah. So I talked about Montana. I had a birth, a uh, beautiful uh, birth where we had um, a multip who was using hypnobirthing and it was amazing because she was making absolutely no noises whatsoever. And somewhere along the line, we got there and about an hour or so after we got there, she wanted to be checked. And it's like, what? We don't check people. Mm-hmm. And she said, and, and her husband came down and said, she just wants to be checked. And I said, fine. And I came up and I was able to speak softly to her. And, and she said, yes, please. And, I, and she just wanted to know. And she was six to seven centimeters. And this was 9.20 in the evening. And so then we went back downstairs a little bit. And about 15 minutes later, the husband come down and says, she's feeling a bit pushy. So we had the tub was all filled up. We were getting her up to go into the tub and of course made the uh, fatal mistake of she had felt like she had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so uh, fortunately, Beth had her gloves on. And she went to the bathroom and sat down on the toilet and baby came. She stood up and baby came out in the bathroom, uh, 22 minutes after she was six to seven centimeters. Yeah, sounds and like you couldn't a tell, she wasn't making any noises. Yeah. So you couldn't tell that this was going on and it was great. And, and she was a little stunned at first. Mom was a little disappointed. I'm so sorry, baby. I'm so sorry, baby. But it was, it was great and the baby was tangled up in its cord. We got her up and within five minutes, we got her into the tub. And she- To got deliver into, her placenta. She delivered her placenta in the bathroom. No, she delivered the placenta in the bathroom. Oh. But we still got her up and into the tub because, and then she sat in the tub for 30 minutes. It was great. Oh, it was nice. Just, it was just a lovely birth. And it was the kind of birth that, that I, as a specialist in odd things, just loved having. So that was great. And <laughs> the specialist in odd things. I love right. it. <laughs> um, let's see. We had uh, two podcasts that I was involved with. This past that we posted this past week, which will now be two weeks ago by the time this comes out, that I'd love to refer our listeners to because I thought they were both good without tooting my own horn. They were two really different podcasts. On the Down to Birth podcast, episode 128, I talk about breach and twin birthing. Mm-hmm. And I get into it and I get really feisty a little bit about saying that that people or doctors who tell women that if their second twin isn't vertex, that they should have a C-section somewhere earlier in their pregnancy, that these doctors have no business whatsoever caring for women who have twins. And they should be referring twins out. If you're not comfortable 
with a second twin in any position. If your doctor ever says that to you, for people listening, that if both twins are head down, we can try a vaginal birth, but if they're not, you should do a C-section, then you should run away from that doctor because that doctor doesn't know anything. And uh, the doctor is not an expert in twins. And therefore yeah. that doctor should not be dealing with twins. And the second podcast was where my assistant Emily and I go really off the, off the handle on the Kelly show. And uh, there's no number to the podcast, but it was posted on Tuesday. Let's see, it would have been the 5th of October. Yeah, Tuesday, the 5th of October. If you go to that episode, we talk about everything on the, under the sun and we really get deeply into it. So I think that that's a good podcast for people who want to know how I really feel about stuff, but we really don't have time sometimes on our podcast to get into. Great. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I uh, had a letter, but I'm going to skip it because we're, uh, we're pressed for time today simply because the lab thing's going to take us a while because there's a lot of labs to talk about. But I do want to talk about a couple of things. And one is um, that lovingly that I heard October 3rd to 9th was National Midwifery Week. So a shout out to all my colleagues out there who are midwives. Yeah. And then evidence-based birth said October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Yes. So, I mean, isn't like, aren't we like, aren't there more than 52 things in the year that that happen? So is, is every week like a week of something for something else? It seems like every day. It's dog day, it's Sunday, it's, yeah. Yeah, Daughter Day, it's, uh, you know, yeah. national, it's never like National Dr. Stew Day, though, so um, well, we'll have to have birthday. one of those, but <laughs> yeah, my birthday, but it just, it's funny how there's, they come up with, there's always something going on, there's a national week, and like, who decided, who who makes that decision? Is that a, con <laughs> just, is that a congressional just... thing, or can we just call it ourselves? <laughs> I don't think it goes through Congress, no. <laughs> okay, so um the New England Journal of Medicine, I, I, I mentioned something earlier about the fact that um, there was a, this article that came out that said that the rate of miscarriage was, was not increased in um, people who get the COVID vaccine in pregnancy. And yeah. we, talked about, we talked about how they changed the, the graph. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, they followed up with a, with a supposed letter to the editor. I'm always suspicious, you know me how these things tend to come along and support what was sort of pro proposed in the first place. And it just, it's just another letter to the other, which again confirms essentially that it's another study that shows that there's no risk to pregnant women taking the COVID vaccine and miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'll leave it, I'll, I'll just leave it for our listeners to decide what I really think about that how it's just convenient that they're, they're coming out with this data. And first they had to change the graph because they went from a 12% risk to an 82% risk. And then they got rid of the percentage. And now they come out with an editorial or a letter to the other saying that, yes, there is no risk. I'm raising my hand and asking the question of you, Bliss. Do we really believe that they know? Based on the same study, they, they just all of a sudden said. No, this is, a, this is apparently a different one. Okay. But do they, do they, I mean, they, they're small numbers, 800 here, a couple thousand here. Um, 
I, I guess it's data, but I'm, do I trust their data when they kind of changed their thing before? And also, we're so careful about what we give pregnant women. And we're, we are. And we are. <laughs> and, and, and no vaccine has ever been studied in pregnancy. And suddenly, this one was declared safe a long time ago by ACOG before any of these papers came out. So ACOG yeah, declares something safe, and then papers come out saying, what ACOG wants it to say, that, I think that's backwards, actually. I think it should be the other way around. Yeah, what it's a little think? convenient. Yeah, so anyway, I just want to put that stuff out there. That there is, if somebody says there's no data, well, now there's data. But the question is, do you believe the data? Because the data came out after they told you it was safe, not before. Right. Okay. I'd like for you to um, maybe uh, go through the new study with us next week. Oh, okay. Well, it's a letter to the editor, but I don't have time to go through it today. So I'm going to hold on to it hey. because I really want to get through a lot of stuff here today. So um, <laughs> UCLA locally has been really promoting the, the uh, jab. And I think I mentioned on a several podcasts ago how they have a commercial with a, a smiley Asian young student with a blue bandaid on her arm and yeah. how happy she is that she got the jab. And, and so now... Um, UCLA is promoting the flu shot and they have a, they have a campaign called the flu ends with you. And uh, the idea that, that they, that it's that time of year again, the CDC recommends everyone over six months get a flu shot. I have to tell you that I've probably once or twice in my entire life had a flu shot. And yeah. I've even, never had one. And I'm never even sure why I did it that year. Um, maybe, maybe it was something that was mandated at, being at Cedars and I was too, uh, I was my, my old self and, and much more compliant. And I don't think I've ever been that compliant. I take that back. But anyway, nonetheless, UCLA is like, like a lot of these institutions are so pro-vaccine, all right? I'm not, you know, the flu shot, yes or no, but the flu shot isn't an mRNA vaccine. It's not experimental. And you know, some years it only has about a 9% efficacy rate. So I mean, it's essentially, I'm not saying that it's that great. Some years it's as high as 60%, but it's never 70, 80, 90% efficacy rate. And yet they recommend it all the time. And obviously it's a moneymaker for these places that do yeah. that. But UCLA was also just, um, I don't know if it's made the rounds. It probably has by the time this comes out. There was a, a video of them escorting an anesthesiologist off the premises. Um, he, he did not get the vaccine. He's a, been a longtime anesthesiologist at UCLA. They told him that he should not come to work. He came to work anyway because he wasn't going to quit. And they had security walk him off the premises and they made a video of it and you guys can find it online. But again, here's a guy who's perfectly healthy, who's a qualified board, probably board certified, longtime faculty at UCLA on anesthesia department who can no longer work there because he chose natural immunity over the unscientific fact of uh, the unscientific position of getting the vaccine. And so there's yes. one less, one less anesthesiologist at a time where hospitals are supposedly, you know, we're worried about them being overrun. And then I don't know how many employees got canned too. A lot. Well, um, since you mentioned that today, I, it was brought to my attention um, that if you go to Pinterest, which is another social media um, app, 
and you put in, um, you're looking for natural um, remedies for the flu, what comes up is pens about this topic often violate community guidelines, which prohibit harmful medical misinformation. Because of this, we've limited search results to pins from internationally recognized health organizations. If you're looking for medical advice, please contact a healthcare provider. Which so, search engine said that? That was from Pinterest. Oh. Um, if you are looking at essential oils and the flu, essential oils are pretty benign. Um, the flu has never been something that was tagged, but, uh, you know, anything that's natural and holistic right now is being flagged as something that, um, you know, you're not listening to what the mainstream medical providers want you to do. So it's, um, it's being taken off. Interesting again. Yep. Yep. Which makes you, makes everyone who listens to our podcast should be more skeptical of everything they're hearing than 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 reassured by that because oh, and, yeah. as we always say if if you have the facts on your side why do you need to censor let people decide you're not their nanny but that but the nanny state you know that's there's no power remember the whole thing there's no power in yes yeah remember we talked about that there's no power in just letting people do what they want you should say no that gives you control over them. And that's what's happening here. Um, yes. Just as an aside, uh, on Alex Berenson's um, Substack, he just he has an article about Sweden saying no to the Moderna shots for people under 30. Yeah, I saw that too. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Sweden says no. I think um, Norway is saying no to, was it masks? Yeah, Norway, the whole country said no to something. Mm -hmm. And Belgium also said something about school kids and, and shots. No. Yeah, they're smarter when it comes to midwifery as well. All those countries. Yeah, it's just a, it's a strange thing. Speaking of, well, again, here's another doctor. I had another Dr. Stu moment. Um, you know, the kings are back and, they, and, you, and, and you have to be vaccinated or have a PCR test to go the Kings game. And so I was thinking about PCR tests and I know that we've talked about the fact that that 40 cycles is it has way too many false positives and that we don't know where there's manufactured what's on the end of the Q-tips and all that sort of thing. But also they tell you that you have to have a PCR test within 72 hours. Yeah. Okay. So what is that? What do I always say about even numbers like that? Where do they come up with 72 hours? Yeah. Why 72 hours? Why not four days? And if you if you say 72 hours, that means you only know what what was going on in that person the moment the Q-tip was in the person's nose. Right. They you could have, have no idea what goes on six hours later or tomorrow <laughs> right. or the next right. day or the day after that. Right. So this reminds me of when I was a resident and for a long time afterwards, until it finally got we finally gained some common sense. We used to screen for herpes. In, in women that had herpes, a uh, history of genital herpes, we would do a culture every week from 36 weeks on. And if it tested positive and they went into labor within the next seven days, we would recommend a C-section for them. Okay. But people started to think, well, wait a minute, the swab is only swabbing the cervix for about a second and a half 
So it only has, it only tells you in real time what was happening during that second and a half and not five minutes later or a day later or three days later or whatever. So yeah. it's completely useless. Yeah. And just food for thought. Again, I'm just putting out more stupidity out there is, is there any data? And I tried to see if I could figure out, you know me, I tried to look, I tried to figure out why the, where the 72 hours came from. I couldn't figure it out. So if anybody knows and wants to uh, message us, be happy to figure that out. I don't think it probably has an answer. I think it's probably just an arbitrary thing. And, you know, every 72 hours that if you have to do that all the time, you know, people that are making the test, they make more money. Very true. And, and there's a lot of people making money. Yeah. And isn't it, you know, and, and I think my boys work on the Hollywood set and I think they test them once a week. Yeah. Some, some of the sets test every day. Yeah. And it's, you know, some test every day, mm -hmm. some test twice a week, some test every week. It's kind of like doing NSTs. I mean, we know NSTs are done basically every two to every three to four days. And there's some data on, on, on that. But there are other doctors who tell women that you need to, you, you know, you, we better start testing your baby once a week with an NST. Well, there's no, it's just arbitrary. There's no science behind a once a week NST. Right. Right. So again, these are all just numbers shot from the hip, meaning absolutely nothing to, in order to satisfy some cubicle worker someplace or some politician or some. Check a box. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody's getting rich off of it somehow. I don't know, because it's, it's always something like that. Okay. So I was going to fly to New York and go and see Brandy Carlisle um, in New York, and I sold my tickets today because it just doesn't seem like it's going to be worth it to go all the way over there um, with the risk of things changing and not being able to go into restaurants and yeah, you, you, you know, you just don't know anymore. My, on the same note, Bliss, this morning, my son Andy texted me and he said, Stewie, calls me Stewie, he said, Stewie, do you want to go to the Manchester United Liverpool game in London with me? Or not in London, I guess it would be in Manchester or it would be in Liverpool, but do you want to fly to England and go to the game with me? And I thought, God, my son's asking me to go, that would be a fantastic thing to do. It would be a life event. It's kind of like going to the Kentucky Derby or going to Wimbledon or something. Um, but I said, I said to myself, well, do I have to sit in a hotel room for two weeks before I go to the game? Do I have to quarantine? I mean, I don't even know what the rules are. Yeah. So I will check into it. But even though if I go, the rules may change on the, on the flight over. Yeah. So it, it's hard to make any plans like that. And I, I feel for you and, you know, giving Everyone up else. to something that you want to see. Yeah. Okay. So last week we played a, a short video of uh, Dr. Aziz talking about um, some absurd, well, what I consider to be absurdities, which he considers to be realities. And, and I want to, you know, I, I, I sat in on this pandemic of the unvaccinated conference a couple weeks ago. I wanted to play another clip and hopefully our, our producers and editors can make the sound really good. So here, let's, I'm gonna play this clip and see what you think. We've already shown that it doesn't get passed on through breast milk and women who you know, were recently vaccinated, whether it was weeks or months, it doesn't get passed on to, um, it's not detected in breast milk or 
in the cord blood that we are um, testing for. So I think those are important things that we do have data for it. And it's just, I think there's so much data that we can't appreciate it. And it's really a more robust data than I think most vaccines, you know, that we have. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive that, um, you know, we have more um, rigorous trials for the COVID vaccine and for pregnancy data than we do for other vaccines. What do you think? Um, I think that uh, the fact that it's not passed through the antibodies is a, is a big one, right? Well, do you believe her? Because the data, she's talking about the spike. She's talking about the, the vaccine. It's not the antibodies. The antibodies cross the placenta. I think we, we've- we're... No, the vaccine doesn't, I'm sorry. The vaccine is not in the breast milk, but natural antibodies would pass through the breast milk. That's what stuck out to me about that. I think she's talking about the spike protein that that you that you manufacture when you're given the vaccine is what I think she's talking about. I mean, because it's out of context, I, I cut the clip out. But mm -hmm. there's data that shows that it does cross in the breast milk, and there's data that shows that it does cross in the umbilical uh, cord. So she just talks, and then she talks about this robust data that we have on this vaccine that we that more so than we have on any other vaccine ever. And I don't think that that's true. I think that, you know, that to me is like somebody trying to sell you a used car. And that's my well, bias. Well, nothing has been, none of the vaccines, other vaccines, as you mentioned, have been tested in pregnancy. So the fact that we have any data is more than what we've had in the past, but that doesn't make it robust. Or well, yeah, if you're taking, if you're, I can see your point. If you're taking it from that point of view, you're right. You know, if you have no data and you have almost no data, well, the almost no data is more data than the no data. Yeah. Right. That's how they talk about it all the time, right? Right. But again, this is this was this came out a week or two ago. ACOG, a couple months ago, said that the vaccine was safe in pregnancy and you should take it. How did they know? Because this data wasn't out when they made that statement. Yeah, it just it's just I'm making a point. OK, so here's a scare. Here's a scary thing. I got this off of uh, from Paul Thomas, who has his his um, against the wind podcast, another podcast that I'd strongly recommend. He has really interesting guests on. He's the pediatrician. Uh, he's the pediatrician who mm -hmm. uh, who's he he's co-author of the vaccine friendly plan, a book that that uh, that we highly recommend for people mm -hmm. for for childhood vaccine, that sort of thing. Anyway, I, I have to read this. It's a statement by the, by the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is the governing body of all the board certification um, across the country. So like in, it's the American Board of OBGYN, it's the American Board of Internal Medicine, the American Board of Pediatrics, all belong to the Federation of State Medical Boards. And they've, they released the following statement in response to a dramatic increase in the dissemination of COVID-19 vaccine misinformation and disinformation by physicians and other healthcare professionals on social media, online and in the media. And they said, physicians who generate and spread COVID-19 vaccine misinformation or disinformation are risking disciplinary action by state medical boards, including the suspension or revocation of their medical license. Due to their specialized knowledge and training, licensed physicians possess a high degree of public trust and therefore have a powerful platform in society, whether they recognize it or not. 
They also have an ethical and professional responsibility to practice medicine in the best interest of their patients and must share information that is factual, scientifically grounded and consensus driven. All right, I'm, I'm gonna reemphasize the last part, consensus driven. Yeah. What does that have to do with being scientifically grounded or factual? For the betterment of public health, spreading inaccurate COVID-19 vaccine information contradicts that responsibility, threatens to further erode public trust in the medical profession and puts all patients at risk. So what they're basically telling you is that they are telling you that if you don't toe the party line, you are, you could pot, they're, they're not, they're saying you might lose your board certification or should lose your license. Now, what I would say is I would, I would hold them to their own standard. And I would say that the uh, people going on television or the doctors telling their patients that there's no downside to this, that it's safe and effective and the side effects are minimal. And that, that, that previously infected people who have um, natural immunity still need to get the vaccine is that they're the ones that are disseminating misinformation or disinformation, and maybe they should have their licenses looked at, but that's not what they're talking about. This is a chilling thing for a, yes, it is. a federation of doctors to, to put that out there. Once again, threatening by coercion, the livelihood of physicians who have a different of opinion from their, con their consensus. Yeah. Because there's a lot of us who have a consensus that's different from their consensus, but our consensus apparently doesn't matter as much. They have a, their consensus is more powerful than our consensus. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, you know, what's been happening to midwives throughout history, you know, with the burning of the witches and the herbalists and the wise women. And then when, uh, when physician and medicine first came into popularity, um, pushing out the granny midwives and, and discrediting them. And, you know, that's how it's been for a long time, but it is, it is, um, yeah, it's scary what's happening. It's really, it's getting more and more and more intense. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going further and further and further out on the plank, these yeah. people. And yeah. at some point, when, when more and more information comes out that we believe will come out about the flaws in this, in this vaccine and about the problems it's going to cause short-term, long-term, uh, especially in, in young people and children who aren't at risk, who who are kids are getting myocarditis and other things like that. Um, you know, they'll never say they're sorry. They'll never apologize. And not one of them will ever pay a price for what's happening, but ultimately uh, they'll meet their maker and hopefully there'll be some retribution at that point. I for, sure hope so. Yeah. We got to hope so. Speaking, yeah. speaking of myocarditis, I didn't mean that to lead into it, but I just want to, I just want to mention, um, the case of, I don't know if you've heard about her bliss, but the case of a woman named Simone Scott. Do you know who Simone Scott is? I don't think so. Okay. Well, people should look her up. You should search Simone Scott, S-I-M-O-N-E Scott, S-C-O-T-T, and just read her story because it, it, it's unbelievably tragic. Um, Simone Scott is a 19-year-old freshman, excuse me, was a 19-year-old freshman at Northwestern University in Evansville, Illinois. She died June 11th of complications from a heart transplant she underwent after developing what her doctors believed was myocarditis following her second dose of the Moderna COVID vaccine. She received her second dose of Moderna on May 1st. When the 2020 Mason High School graduate and senior class vice president paid a surprise visit to her parents on Mother's Day, May 9th, her mother said she noticed Scott wasn't feeling well. 
She returned to campus on May 11th, where even after a visit to the doctor, her condition worsened. Her mother said that multiple tests came back negative, including a COVID test. On Sunday, May 16th, a week later, she texted her father and said, Dad, I feel so dizzy, I cannot get out of bed. That's when everything really started going downhill from there. After multiple interventions, including hooking Scott up to an ECMO machine, an ECMO machine is where it's a heart-lung machine, which takes oxidates your blood outside of your body. That mirrors the function of the heart so her own heart could rest. Doctors determined she needed a heart replacement. Her doctors have not fully confirmed the cause of her death, but they say it appears Scott suffered from myocarditis. Um, I don't need to read any more other than uh, that she was excited to get vaccinated. She was she wanted to do what she thought was right. Uh, she even she even um, put that on her uh, Twitter thread. I think that she was excited to get her second dose of the vaccine. And now her mother's arranging her funeral. And that was back in June. And I just think that we can't ignore stuff like that. Maybe it's anecdotal. This is, was a 19 year old, unbelievably beautiful, which again, maybe my commentary, it doesn't matter if they're beautiful or not beautiful, but it, who had a whole life ahead of her, who was perfectly healthy, who did not, and if she, and if she had lived in Sweden would not be getting the vaccine because she's under 30. Um, yeah. But here in order to go to college, which was her dream, they forced her to get a vaccine that killed her, period. Yeah, where there's a risk, there needs to be a choice. And my uh, condolences go out to her family. Um, one more thing I think I have uh, before um, we, we get into the labs today. And that was, we talked last week about um, there were gonna be some layoffs of healthcare workers that occurred between last podcast and this podcast. Apparently that's happened at several places and including uh, New York's largest healthcare provider fired 1400 unvaccinated workers. Now they have a workforce of about 76,000. So it's you know essentially only 2% of their workforce that they fired. Um, but they obviously, the, the, the CEO of the company said something which just I highlighted because it bothered me. He said, Kemp said the terminations will have no impact on patient care at the 23 hospitals and other facilities that they that they manage. Okay, so my thinking is this, if it had no impact on the patient care, then why did they have the workers there in the first place? How does getting rid of 1400 workers not impact patient care? You just make a statement like that because you're, you're reassuring people, but you know, maybe you should give an example of how it doesn't affect patient care rather than just making a statement and of course, these are press releases and Reuters or uh, Associated Press, they just print them. There's no challenge to that anymore. It's like, what do you mean, Mr. Kemp, that, that they, you had 14 extra, 1,400 extra workers that you fired and you didn't need them? Why did you have them in the first place? And if you're the CEO, weren't you wasting money on 1,400 workers that you didn't need because now you, don't, you say you didn't need them? You know, we're living in the theater of the absurd, Bliss. Yeah. I mean... I mean Target and, and, and Costco were open when small stores were closed, all right? And, and why do we want the government to control more medical care when they are not competent at pretty much anything that they do? You know, um, Dan Bongino always cites the, um, the Moneyball example from the movie Moneyball. It's like, if he's a good hitter, why, isn't he, why doesn't he hit good? You know, and, and if the government, if the, if, you want, if the government's good at doing something, why isn't the government good at doing something? And that's, you know, you can ask that question about everything that they, that they say, they, they promise you stuff and then they're not good at it. And then we want, and then 
they they want to fix what they broke in the first place or fix the problem they caused in the first place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right, so let, let's talk about, let's talk about stuff that that that's more um a more it's important it's obviously important everything we talk about in the podcast is important it is but it's important in a different way and so um i gave you a list of some of the labs that are on the initial lab seat that at least that we do in our practice mm-hmm. um and it starts with i guess the type and rh blood type and rh so again, this is a, a lab panel that's drawn uh, generally with the first prenatal visit or the second prenatal visit in most practices. Sometimes the reason that a, a panel is drawn in the medical model is because everybody gets everything in the medical model. That's the way it's drawn. Sometimes in our practice, we could individualize care and we could pick some tests not to do, but sometimes it's actually cheaper to order the panel than it is to break it up and order individual things. So a lot of times, we'll just order a panel as well. And I want our clients to, or our, our listeners to know that there's things on the panel that you don't necessarily need to draw, but it might be actually more expensive to, <laughs> to take them out than to draw them. So- Yeah, what if, what if a woman came in and just said she didn't want to do a blood draw? Um, we would give them informed consent mm-hmm. and we would probably, as part of that informed consent, we would tell them that there are certain medical conditions that the laboratory stuff helps us to know whether or not your pregnancy is going okay, that it's okay to continue to have a home birth, that we feel comfortable supporting you. And then also, if you don't do these tests and for any reason you or the baby end up in the hospital, that it's going to be much more difficult for you. And that's part of the informed consent process. Again, if they, after hearing that, they say, we don't want to do it, then what are you going to do? What would you do? I would still take care of them. I would. I would. I, I would do uh, additional informed consent. I had a woman who came into care um, with borderline gestational diabetes and she, you know, she didn't want to do another blood draw for the CBC at 28 weeks. So I had no way of really knowing where her numbers were at that point. And so I just, you know, I had to give her, um, Uh, informed consent about, you know, if we don't know, here's some of the things that, you know, we might, we might be a little bit more apt to give you Pitocin if, you know, we're seeing signs of a bleed and, you know, here are some of the risks of bleeding too much. And, you know, so I just did a specialized informed consent. So I would probably do that for them. Um, but not everybody is going to feel comfortable with, um, in terms of providers of not knowing those numbers, just like some, some providers don't feel comfortable with no ultrasounds or with not using a Doppler. Um, so you think it's okay as a provider in in our model with the relationship that we try to develop to say to the client, um, I understand your choices to not do that, but I'm, I'm, I'm really not real comfortable with that. Um, do you think that would you would you you think that that's okay to say or would should you you keep your discomfort out of the conversation? I mean, there have been times that I've been uncomfortable with choices that my clients have made, um, and I think that as a provider, that's that's the line that you have to draw for yourself, and you have to figure out if it's a good fit or not. You know, there are there are women who don't want to do any tests, and if she's going into a provider who you know, wants to make sure that they're doing all the tests, that might not be a good fit. 
So I know in some areas of the country, you don't have as many options in terms of midwifery care. Um, but I think that it's within the provider's right to be able to say, here's how I would be comfortable caring for you um, and, uh, and give her you know, some other options in the community that she knows of midwives who may be more comfortable with something like that. Having said that, I would say that I can't remember the last time that a client of mine has refused a new client. Most of the clients, a lot of the clients I get have already been seen by somebody else and they already had all this stuff done, but yeah. I can't remember a client refusing the initial blood work. Um, no, they, me neither. They, they, may they may decline the NIPT, which is also drawn after 10 weeks. Um, and I will, if I see somebody eight weeks and they're, and they're, and they're confirmed pregnancy, they have an ultrasound we hear a heartbeat, stuff like that. And they need a blood draw. I would tell them, I always tell them to wait until after 10 weeks, if they're deciding that they want the NIPT, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I don't like being stuck with a needle and this yeah. way I can, I can limit them to being stuck one time instead of two times. So, yeah, I agree. Right. And we're going to, we're going to talk about, um, genetic testing in a separate, a separate uh, podcast. So but let's yeah, talk about the let's say. talk about the basic uh, panel and uh, and I've added things to my basic panel which we'll get to but the basic panel initially the one of the first tests that's on it usually is the, is the blood type and and Rh type right is that yeah, a, yeah. so the importance and of antibodies. that antibodies mm-hmm. well we'll get to that yeah, that's the second one so mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to <laughs> let's try to go in order so okay. the first one tells you whether your blood type is A B O or A B or that's it I guess A B or O uh, or A B. Um, and, um, the importance of that is if for any reason that you are O and your partner is A or B or AB, then there's something that can happen where the babies can get slightly more jaundiced after they're they're born called ABO incompatibility. And you just, there's nothing you can do about it, but you can be, you can be aware of that. And then theoretically you can advise people very early on to make sure the baby gets lots of daylight, lots of sunlight afterwards. Or in our case, we fortunate enough that we have Billy Rubin lights and we theoretically can leave them at the, the newborn's house and they can even use them if they wanted to, to try to head off the possibility of this, the, this thing called ABO incompatibility, which rarely leads to severe jaundice, but it's a, it's a potential problem. And if combined with other issues like dehydration or an RH incompatibility or something like that, can, can um, contribute to more jaundice than we like to see. So uh, checking the blood type seems important to me. And then of course, RH, you wanna tell us a little bit about RH and whether about positive, negative and that sort of thing? Yeah, the RH factor is the negative or positive that's after your blood type. And so if the mom is, if the mom is positive, then there's really no concern. If the, mo- if the mom is negative, then we would wanna know the dad's blood type, because if the dad is positive, then there can be something similar to what you were just saying about ABO incompatibility, where there can be an issue. It's not an issue in the first pregnancy. It's an issue in subsequent pregnancies because um, in terms of the antibodies that can develop in the first pregnancy, if there's an incompatibility. So this is the way that we find out whether or not we should recommend that you get the uh, Rogam shot, which would be given at 28 weeks. Um, and then within 72 hours, there's that 72 hours again, um, within 72 hours after um, the baby is born. But that 72 hours has limited data. Data, 
Yeah. Because that test was done on prisoners who were only furloughed for 72 hours. So that's how they, they determined the 72 hours. It probably could go longer than 72, probably could go 73, 96, mm -hmm. whatever. But the study was only done with uh, with three days. That's why we try to do it within 72 hours. And that and that's correct. And then, uh, then, and then there's also the antibody screen that's done also to look for other antibodies, which are less significant than the RH antibody, but sometimes may be a, a potential problem. And I'm not gonna go through all of them today, but if you get a positive result on some of those, you need to look it up and see whether it's an insignificant antibody like uh, Lewis or a, a more uh, significant antibody like Kelly. And you'll, I'm not, that's too involved for today's podcast, but so a type RH and antibody screen is classically part of the um, prenatal panel. Yeah, uh, and, they, and you know, there, there are people who do decline the Rogam shot, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's good for you to know. I think it's good for you to know that there's this incompatibility so that you can make an informed decision. So if we're just talking about getting the test, I think it's an important one because it can cause you to have subsequent miscarriages if your body does build antibodies in that pregnancy. So we haven't done a podcast on RH, did, did we? No, not so since I, I got I got a request from somebody. So we'll we'll do one. I mean that's a small segment. We could do that in probably 15 minutes. We'll do we'll do a segment on RH uh, in the future. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is the most you know most common one that we probably everybody knows. It's called a CBC or complete blood count. And yeah. that contains your white your white count, your hemoglobin. Uh, your hematocrit and your platelet count, and then a few other measurements of things of the cells, which really the most significant one is the MCV, which is the mean corpuscular volume, which is the size of your red cells. Very small cells um, can be consistent with iron deficiency anemia or something called thalassemia. Very large cells can be consistent with B12 or folate deficiency, or sometimes hereditary macrocytomia, which can be seen in certain um, uh, nationalities and ethnic groups. And you just sort of need to know, a lot of times it's good if you have an abnormality on the MCV, you can try to get an old an old uh, CBC report from a previous pregnancy or from their internist. And you can look back and see if it was the same back then, then it's really not that big a deal or if it's changing. So, but, but the hemoglobin, obviously, Bliss, you wanna comment on hemoglobin, platelet count? Um, yeah, it's good to have a baseline, first of all, because there is a cutoff for midwives, which is the hemoglobin 10 or lower, um, or lower than 10, um, is considered uh, not appropriate for out-of-hospital delivery. So if we have a woman coming into care who's already at that point, um, then you know we're already working on her nutrition anyways, but that's something that might take some specific attention to building up um, some supplements or through food to get that number up. But it's also good to see a baseline because we do redo it at 28 weeks because your blood volume changes throughout your pregnancy. And we expect for that to drop, but we still wanna make sure that it's at a level that we feel comfortable with. Um, and platelets, obviously, if you if you have low platelets, that can cause bleeding issues as well. So um, these are these are important things when yeah, we're managing and, something outside of the hospital. And and the and the hemoglobin, by the way, it's interesting that we 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 rattle off the the level below ten. We we again we have an arbitrary number of ten. Yeah. Why not nine point yeah. nine? But um, again, it's 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 just helpful to guide us. 
-hmm. it's it's also um like with the platelet count and stuff like that that can be indicative of other problems um in the pregnancy so you know a low platelet count early on could is different than a low platelet count that you might get at 28 weeks or even later on if you because you see low platelets and help syndrome or uh something called itp which is and there's different itp has different names one is idiopathic thrombocytopenia of pregnancy and the other one is uh, immune thrombocytopenic purpura and they both have the same initials so you um so, but it's good to know what the platelet count is, and it's really good to know where you're starting with the hemoglobin. And again, it's not something that necessarily would ever exclude somebody, but if somebody has a really weird CBC result, you want to figure that out, and you want to figure that out early so that we have time in our model to make corrections if that's possible, so we can still get them the birth that they want. Yeah, and that's a big one for midwives. I mean, I really do think we get a lot of information about how to support someone nutritionally through their CBC, so... Yeah. Uh, RPR. RPR is uh, also called a VDRL. It's a screen for syphilis. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't see much syphilis in our population. Um, certain parts of the world, yeah, they may. It's still part of the routine blood work. Um, do you know why? Um, because if someone has syphilis when they're pregnant, the, the chances of uh, stillborn, miscarriage, and anomalies increase greatly. So it's one of the big ones that we would want to know so that we can give you informed consent. And I think that, you know, now we're starting to get into the STIs um, testing. And I think that these are the, the ones that the woman specifically was talking about. Like, why do, you know, I have the same partner. Why do I need to do, you know, syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia and HIV and, Especially you know, if, you had, if you had, if this is your second or third pregnancy and you, and you had it two years ago with your other pregnancy. Right. Right. So I think, you know, I think it's totally reasonable to decline those. One of the things that I do when we talk about gonorrhea and chlamydia, because we're always testing that um, to give good and informed consent to the mom about whether or not erythromycin would be recommended for the baby once it's born. Um, you know, the thing that hospitals don't, they don't trust that, you know, you know what's happening with your husband, right? Um, so I usually just say out loud in front of in front of the dad, um, as long as you guys are in a monogamous relationship, you know, if you, that's something that you would like to decline, you're more than welcome to, um, because I think that's an important thing to take into consideration. Because you know that is that is a possibility that that could happen, and then you know you've given them good informed consent about that as well. Yeah, and if you get a positive though, then you got then you have all the, all the problems that go along with the social problems that go along with that. But the other <laughs> thing about chlamydia and gonorrhea is one of those other tests that we say that if you don't have it on the chart, and and the baby ends up at the hospital for any reason, that that that's another thing that gets them a little bit agitated at the hospital. Not a great reason to do stuff, but just something that the patients need to know so that they can make that informed decision. Also, the RPR, which is the syphilis screening test, some, I mean, you know, it's, you know, I don't see, I don't think I've ever seen a positive one that re represented syphilis, but there are what we call false positive RPRs. And mm -hmm. they're sometimes seen in people with lupus or other, other um, autoimmune connective tissue type diseases. And so when you get a, po a positive RPR, it doesn't mean they have syphilis. The lab will automatically or almost automatically reflex that to something called the FTA absorption 
which is actually looking for the, uh, the, the treponemal antigen uh, or antibody, I guess. I'm not sure which one, but it'll look for this. And then that will usually come back negative. And then you know it's a false positive. And then you don't have to do any more with that unless somebody is symptomatic or hasn't, you know, or is, is like complaining of rashes or hair falling or other signs of connective tissue diseases or lupus, then you want to work that up for them. But that's one of the ways that sometimes it's found is with a, with a RPR that's positive and, and some, you know, you don't want to make the idiotic statement, oh my God, you have syphilis, because that would be pretty, un, that would be the wrong thing to say. Yes. <laughs> that would be insensitive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then we have um, uh, the routine panel has hepatitis B surface antigen. And I always add hepatitis C antibody. Me too. All right. So do you want to talk, what's your take on those two? Oh, I'll let you talk about them because I don't know as, as much about them, but hep B. Yeah. Um, people hep with B. active hepatitis, if you want to know about that. And people with active hepatitis. Um, hepatitis B surface antigen is the best marker for that, but there are other markers for that as well. One of the things we don't do in the first trimester is we don't do a liver panel. No. So we, don't, we don't know if their transaminases are elevated. And ultimately, actually, that would probably be a better test to do because if you're really looking for hepatitis, some people will have hepatitis B and the surface antigen will not be activated, but the core or the E will still be activated. It's very confusing. I'm not going to get into that. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a screening test for hepatitis. Again, in our population- Which can be passed to us as well, which is one of the reasons that we screen for things like that in HIV is to protect the birth workers. Right. And then hepatitis yeah. C antibody, you, you don't really test hepatitis C antigen. Hepatitis C antibody means- You've been exposed to hepatitis C and your body is making antibodies against it. But you then, if that was positive, then you'd want to work up the liver. And you'd want to, uh, you'd want to either, if you know what to do, you'd order specific blood tests, a more in-depth hepatitis panel, or you'd send them off to see their internist or yeah. the hepatologist so that they could evaluate that. So that's a decent screening because that's also an infectious disease and definitely want to be protected. You want to protect them, their baby, their partner. You want to protect your, your team from hepatitis C. Yeah. And we don't, um, you know, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but we don't normally recommend the hepatitis B vaccine for newborn babies. However, if we did have a mom who had hep, who had hepatitis B, then that would be something that we would want to get on board sooner. Rather yeah. If the mom has active hepatitis B, not only would you give them the vaccine because that's not going to help the baby immediately. They also will generally give them something called HBIG, which is hepatitis B immune globulin. And you give them that too. I mean, if, yeah. but again, we're not, you know, we're, we're wading into the weeds here. I don't really want to get too much into the weeds, but these are why we're doing these tests and people wanted to, wanted this information. So that's why we're going through it. Right. Um, you mentioned HIV. So let's talk about quickly about HIV. HIV is not part of my routine panel. Right. Um, interestingly enough, when I transferred somebody a week or two ago, I might've mentioned her story. Uh, we, I talked about it to transfer to Dr. Crane. I think I mentioned the story to you, right? We talked about yep. that. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. when, when I sent the records over, um, I got a, a, a call from Dr. Crane wanting to know if I knew her HIV status. And I didn't because the, you know, the, the, the it's relevance to, uh, to the population that we take care of is, is extremely minimal. If, if I mean, I'm being generous by saying extremely minimal because it's essentially non-existent. 
And, um, you know, we take a good history and I'm assuming people don't lie to us about their history. Uh, so I don't just draw tests because I because I don't trust people. I draw tests based on when, whether or not the, the information is gonna change my management. And in this particular case, I didn't think that HIV is relevant. So it's not part of my routine panel. If somebody gives me part of their history that makes me wonder about it, or they want it because I bring it up and most people don't decline it, they just decline it. So that's- yeah. It's it's a stand it's a standard one that I do just like hepatitis B and C. Yeah, it's funny how HIV you know thirty years ago, twenty years ago was a death sentence, and now it's like not even nobody even talks about it anymore. Yeah, but it's passed through bodily uh, fluid, so it's another one that it, you know if you have someone who's got HIV, there's some considerations. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, as a provider. But I don't think I've ever found it. I don't think I've ever found it on a screening HIV test on a pregnant woman. Yeah, yeah. I think I, they, people come in HIV positive because they've they've um, they, you know I've had a couple patients in my career back when I was in the hospital who got it from blood transfusions um, mm-hmm. in the in the years before because I've been practicing since the mid '80s, so that's yeah. before they knew about the, that it was transmitted that way. Um, rubella. Yep. <laughs> We're checking to see if you're immune to rubella because if you get rubella during your pregnancy, um, again, similar to syphilis, it can be very serious for the baby in terms of stillbirth and um, miscarriages um, and and possible anomalies. So we uh, we want to know that you're immune, and if you're not for some reason, then giving you the information about being a little bit more safe of not getting rubella while you're pregnant. Yeah, and rubella is also called German measles. And, and the thing about being safe and pregnant, I mean, essentially what we tell you is stay away from little kids with spots. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, if, you, if you're test not immune. Now, the question is, in the hospital, in the postpartum time, if you're rubella not immune, they want to give the mother the rubella vaccine. All right, now I've forgotten and maybe you remember if it's okay to breastfeed after you get the rubella vaccine, or do you have to pump and dump? Um, I don't remember. Do you remember? I don't know. I would need to look into that. Okay. Again, if any of our listeners know that off the top and you want to send us an Instagram message, that would be great. I mean, we could look it up in five minutes afterwards. I, I should have looked it up beforehand, but I was late getting to my own podcast, so I didn't get a chance to do that. You were just on time. <laughs> well, that's late for me because I usually prepping for like an hour. Yeah. Before. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, we I don't if people are rubella non immune, I tell them that rubella non immune, but I don't advocate or not advocate for for the vaccine after. Pregnancy. I don't either. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what's not part of the regular panel are the next three. They're part Four. of my panel. Mm-hmm. One is TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. Mm-hmm. And it's a general screening test. And you're looking essentially for, for hypothyroidism. You really can't, it's not harder to diagnose hyperthyroidism based purely on a blood test for TSH. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, you want to look at the you want to look at the woman clinically. And if she doesn't look hypo or hyperthyroid, it's probably going to be normal. But you 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 draw a high TSH means that your thyroid is not responding and your pituitary is sending out. TSH to try to get your thyroid to make thyroid hormone and it's not making thyroid hormone. So it's you, you, your pituitary starts to shout at your thyroid by raising the uh, amount of TSH it puts out 
till it becomes really high. And that's classically seen in people who are hypothyroid. In hyperthyroidism, your thyroid is putting out too much thyroid. So it, shut, it feeds back on your pituitary and shuts down your TSH. So your TSH is really low. But HCG molecule, the pregnancy molecule is very similar to the TSH molecule. So sometimes it can cause a little bit of hyperthyroidism, which then will suppress your own TSH. So your TSH can be really low, or in the, especially in the first trimester. Um, and that's not a sign of hyperthyroidism so much in, unless they clinically look hypothyroid, hyperthyroid. And if you're curious about whether they're hyperthyroid or not, then you should draw a free T3 and a free T4 and antithyroid antibodies, and you should do a thyroid workup. But, but if you have a TSH that comes back really low and the patient is, looks clinically euthyroid, I wouldn't be chasing that value by doing any other testing for that. Yeah, so I usually do the TSH and the T3, 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 four and four. Oh, you do both. I just do TSH, but you do. The I do. I do them all at the same time, so that if if you do have um, a number that's you know high or low, then you already have that information for the same reason you talked about earlier, not having to draw someone again. And well, normally, I refer yeah. to you um, for that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, to, to have, if someone needs their medication, um, you know, if someone is already on thyroid medication and needs that monitor, you have been the person, my consulting physician that I've worked with. So, and people should know that the laboratory holds on to the blood. So if you get a, a TSH, that's weird and you don't send, you're like me and you don't send a free T3, free T4, you get it back in a day or two. Usually, usually you get the routine labs back in, in like two days. Okay. You can call the lab and you can say, can you add a T3 and a T4, a free T3 and a free T4? And they'll do it. So yeah. you don't have to stick them again. Okay. Uh, you know, they really hold on to the blood for, uh, I'm not sure how long they can hold on to it for, but probably at least a week or two, they probably hold on to it before they destroy okay. it. Okay. Okay. Just so you know. Well, once it's okay. in the it's in the tube, it's got anticoagulant and preservative in it. So it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, you made a face. I know I've had, I've had them not pick up labs on time and then, you know, say that they can't use them anymore and stuff like that. So, yeah, that may be because they weren't spun or refrigerated or something appropriate. Yeah. They sat in the box outside the back door um, yeah. in, the Always sun, a bummer. in the sun for too long. Yeah, like, uh. Always a bummer. Okay. Okay. Um, so thyroid stuff. And then uh, what are the D. other ones? Vitamin mm -hmm. D. Mm -hmm. Okay. I never used to do vitamin D. Um, in my first maybe 10, 20 years in practice, wasn't really something that was in the forefront. And then it sort mm -hmm. of became much more, we realized that how- Important it is. Yeah, how deficient most people are. Yeah, um, I looked it up and women are, over 50% of women are deficient in vitamin D. And the cutoff, um, when you when you send it to the lab, right? It's thirty five. That is what they consider to be. Is it thirty or thirty five that I they consider? Thirty, to be but I think a lot of people like it to, like it to be closer to fifty. But but above thirty is probably okay, and below thirty probably means you are low. Yeah. So between sixty five and eighty is the number that I'm usually going for with women wow. because it's a preventative also for breast cancer. So there's a lot of other things that it does in terms of your immune system, um, depression, uh, pain, 
there's a lot of things that vitamin D regulates, but in terms of preventative care, since we're dealing with women's health, um, from an integrative medicine perspective, you want it a lot higher than that standard. For the for the average woman that doesn't live in a tropical climate where they're wearing you know bathing suits all day long in the sun all year, but average people like you're you're bundled up today because you're up in up in the islands and and um, a lot of people use sunscreen, so their their vitamin D is low. How much vitamin D would you supplement them to get them up to sixty five? Ten thousand I use a day. Ten thousand. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And if someone's really low, like if they come in and they're like 17 or something, I would do 10,000 as well. Um, but the thing that they're finding out, Stu, about vitamin D is, you know, even in California, where we do have a lot of sunny days and people who don't wear sunscreen and outside are still low. And, you know, what we're, what we're finding is that it's because a lot of our meat um, is not grass fed. So when we ate meat that was grass-fed, we got a lot of vitamin D from the animal protein. Good to know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's not what's happening anymore. So a lot of people are deficient. And, and so and are vegans more likely to be deficient in vitamin D? Um, most of them are, but pretty much, like I said, 50%, almost everybody that I test is lower than that 65%, that 65%. Yeah. I don't think I've, you know, 65, maybe once in a blue moon, I'll have somebody that high. Most people are in the 20 to 40 range. Uh, And if they're over 30, I've always thought that that's okay, but I always tell them to take 5,000 a day anyway, but maybe I'll up it. Maybe I'll tell them to take 10,000 a day or, or if it's really low, they can load with 20,000 a day for a few days. Right. Yeah. 20, if someone's sick, you can tell them to take vitamin D 20,000 I use for four days. Um, and that's great, but I wouldn't do 20,000 for a long period of time. No, no, just for the load. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And okay, then the one, moving on. yeah, the one that you like a lot is the hemoglobin A1C. <laughs> so, um, hemoglobin A1C is a, is a lab test that gives you a sort of um, average value blood sugar for the last about three months or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we'd like to see it uh, in the in the high fours to low fives range, would you say? Yeah. Okay. So what happens when you do one and it's 5.9 or 6.2 or, or whatever? How, would, how does that change your management? Then I would, well, it wouldn't change in terms of what I'm doing right away. Because like I said, I always get a diet diary by the second. Um, I might do some, you know, counseling, like this is high. So, you know, during this week, you might want to be watching the carbohydrates that you're eating. You know, we're already talking about eating more protein and and making sure you're having veggies and fruits as your primary, but, um, you know, just letting them know to be a little bit more attentive towards it. And then, um, as I get their diet diary, then I can be more specific. Okay. Here's what we're talking about. Here's what you can combine with it. Here is where you might want to be adding an exercise. And then, um, I probably would would test them again before 28 weeks, either through a glucometer or something like that, just to make sure that we're on track. Yeah, I think that if you get somebody with a high hemoglobin A1C, like in the you know like above six, yeah. um, at their first prenatal visit, I think you're obligated to try to figure out, you know, with your diet diary, figure out what they're eating. But even if they're eating fairly healthy and it's that high, I think I think early early screening for diabetes, and I'm not talking about an early one hour post 50 gram glucola test, 
Like yeah. you talked about, I'm talking about maybe getting them a glucometer and having them check some fasting and having them check a couple of one hour or two hour postprandials and making sure that, that it's okay. Because obviously the risk for all, all of a risk of pregnancy go up when you have poor glycemic control. Yeah. Like we talked about last right. week. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. We talked about it. So right. they can tune so the, in the podcast. Yeah. So the other one that you didn't mention that I always talk about when I first um, meet a client is, do they know their MTHFR status? Yep. Well, that was, that was, that was, I was getting there. Oh, you were, it yeah. wasn't on your list. Oh, that I sent you. Right. I, but you know what? I remembered about it because I was talking about it in the office yesterday. Oh, okay. Right. Um, yeah. So, it, the, you know, we're learning more and more about this. It wasn't something like a lot of doctors, obstetricians don't test for this. Your colleagues don't test for it, right? No. In your in your old office. Yeah. No, so, I, don't, um, I don't know if things have changed in it, but it was never part of, of the thinking in, in the medical model. And I don't know that it's changed. Yeah. Um, but it's changed for me now because of you guys. And because, you know, one of the midwives in uh, uh, Shamin, who I don't know, I don't know if she's still in SoCal, but, you know, she has a nutritionist who, who I went to uh, talk with her uh, uh, that she gave. And, I, and it just changed everything for me about this, about this MTFHR stands for methotetrahydrofolate reductase deficiency. <laughs> say that five times quickly and then, and then you can graduate. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, because it, it, it's, it's associated with like midline defects. It's yeah. associated with delayed labor. Can be. Right. So yeah. you can go ahead. So there's a lot there. It, you can go down a rabbit hole with MTHFR mm-hmm. and I am definitely not a specialist um, when it comes to this, but I think it's very important to know your status in terms of your overall health care. Um, one is because of what you were saying that you don't process um, the B12 vitamins in the same way, folate um, and folic acid, which we're already recommending that people um, don't take. Folic acid, they take methylated folate. I've been, I've been out of it so long. I'm like, which one is it? Folate, yeah, folate, right? So methylated, methylated folate is what you're supposed to take. Yes. And folic acid is not absorbed as well. It's synthetic. So folate is what you would get from your foods as well. So, um, but you don't process the same way when you, when you have, there's two different genes. So, and the other thing to know is that they are correlating it to some of those babies might be the babies that are having adverse reactions to vaccines. So it's good for you to know your status so that you can make a more informed decision when it comes to um, deciding whether or not you want to get uh, early childhood vaccinations. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah, it's easy enough to do. You might, you might want to check with your lab um, for people listening who do this, who are practitioners to be sure that they, they run it. Some people have to send it out and you got to make they, sure. They, they usually charge extra. It's usually like a hundred bucks for that test. Yeah. And yeah. you have to get in the right tubes and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. you just always want to check that stuff out. And then the last thing that I don't routinely do on my, my clients in the first trimester, but a lot of midwives do, is a urine culture. Do you mm-hmm. do your? Did you do urine culture routinely on their first or second visit? I don't. I just do it for gonorrhea and chlamydia at some point in their care. Usually when I do GBS. Yeah, you mean a dirty catch urine is how you do that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But some people, and then then you, you know you do a urine culture on an asymptomatic person, and then sometimes it comes back with like. 
50,000 50, colonies, which is less than 100,000 of group B strep. Right. Right. And now you've like, all right, now what? Now what? So, you know, again, be careful about testing for things that don't need to be tested for, because it's just like the, the story about people who have an unnecessary ultrasound in the third trimester have a 22% higher rate of cesarean section simply because they had an ultrasound. So again, you want to test tests that that are going to change your management or there's a reason to do it. And if people are asymptomatic, I'm not, you you know, again, rabbit hole is a good word. You start to test for too many things. You start going down a rabbit hole. And that's really not the model by which I believe that midwives want to practice. So yeah. um, Yeah. So I think the, I think the last thing that I want to add about informed consent having to do with these initial labs is from a provider perspective, you know, inform the woman about what you're testing about texting for, give her information on what you're drawing for. I, so many women, not necessarily in midwifery care, but in a doctor's office or like they took so many tubes of blood. I have no idea what they were testing for. Like help them understand what you're looking for and how they can be an active participant in their healthcare. I think that's really important. So the additional ones that we do like vitamin D, um, thyroid panel, uh, MTHFR, you know, those, I always say, Hey, I'm drawing your blood anyways. You know, I don't know how often you get your blood drawn, but it might be nice to just check your A1C and your thyroid. And if you don't know MTHFR status, um, this is a good time for us to just check and see, give you an overall picture of how you're doing. And most of my clients are interested in, in knowing that information. So just, at, um, my advice to providers is just always make sure, even though it seems like it's kind of the standard for you, um, you know, in, include the family in what it is that you're testing for and why. Yeah. And by doing that at the very beginning of the pregnancy, you're developing a, a trusting relationship with somebody because they, they understand that, I mean, people like to be informed and they, and if they, if you develop that, that conversation that you're giving me informed consent about drawing a CBC, Wow, that's pretty impressive because in, in my in my first pregnancy, the doctors gave me a lab slip and told me to go get a lab, go get labs drawn. And I have no idea what they were doing. Right, right, right so exactly. It's impressive. Yeah. Okay, so before we wrap up, we need to talk about one more of my favorite subjects. Oh, what is it? Boobs. Oh, boobs. I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's bamboobies time on the uh, Birthing Instincts podcast. And, you know, uh, again, I'm not an expert in this, but I wanted to say that I know you have some words to say about this because because this is one of your favorite things. But I mentioned last, I think last week that that uh, besides the products that they like us to talk about, which is the nipple balm and the uh, the train, the yoga bra and the nurse, the washable, reusable, recyclable, whatever they are, nursing pads, they do have some teas. I mentioned that last time, but I didn't really get into them. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about them. They've got uh, more milk, less worry tea. They've got oh, two of those. They've got um, recovery tea. They've got morning sickness tea. And then they've also got heartburn tea. Awesome. So these are new products that you didn't even know about. I didn't. Yeah. But why don't you tell us again um, why they were such a, a big uh, item for you guys when you had the sanctuary? Yeah, because everything that we hand selected for our eco boutique was um, with the environment and, you know, healthy mom, healthy babies in mind in terms of using all natural products. So bamboo is um, 
is a is a resource that can grow very quickly. So that's why it's a good one to use. And um, they don't show through your clothes because they are designed differently than most of the reusable pads because they're in sweet little heart shapes. Um, so we really loved them. <laughs> yeah. can, you, can you see, I'm wearing some right now. Can you see them? <laughs> are you wearing their bra too? No, no, they're in the bag. They're still in the bag. <laughs> Um, but you know, they're great gifts. They're great gifts. So if, even if you aren't nursing, um, you know, you could go and buy a couple of them for the next time that you go to a baby shower. They're one of my favorite gifts to give. So I'm excited about their teas too. Yeah. And they, and they are, they are a partner for the birthing instincts podcast. We do hope you'll support them. And, you know, they have this great discount this 40% off, which is like, I've never heard of a 40% off discount. So that's yeah. go to bamboobies.com. That's B-A-M-B-O-O-B-I-E-S.com and use the promo code instincts, I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S. For those of you who don't know how to spell. Right <laughs> <laughs> now, if you don't know how to spell instincts. Ah. All right. So bamboobies.com and the promo code is instincts. So we want to thank them and our um our other all our sponsors, uh, Element and uh the uh, Silverettes who have been sponsoring us for a while. And, and we're really thrilled to have people who want to support us um, because what we try to do here on the Birthing Instinct podcast is bring you current events, make you smile a little bit, make you cry a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's things to smile about. And there's things to cry about. This is true. But from my point of view, um, it's, you have to stand up for your beliefs at this point in our, in right now. And you have to, you have to, you have to be audacious, if that's a word. And yeah. um, just remember that that when you seems like you're inundated with people who are saying the opposite thing, that you're not wrong and you are not alone. When people when people say things to you like, you know, you're crazy for not getting the vaccine or something like that, um, just remember that that's their opinion, and that's not your opinion. <laughs> And yeah. they, they're entitled, again, they're entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And the facts <laughs> are on your side, for those of you who um, who, who listen to us and who, who side with our point of view, and I think that most of you do. Uh, for those of you who don't, I really appreciate you listening as well, because you know what? It's very rare these days for people to listen to something that, that they disagree with. Everybody sort of trickles down to the path of least resistance. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Bliss, what is your path for the next week? Are you <laughs> on the island? Um. Yeah, I'm just here. I'm just here. I'm. I'm. Uh. I started writing a screenplay, so I'm working on my screenplay, and I'm walking and uh, doing a lot of meditation and journaling, and just gonna keep taking care of myself. And and uh, the NHL regular season starts this week, so that will be very exciting for me. And uh, whether I go for to you. Whether a game or I go, whether I go to a game or not, um, live, uh, I'm not sure yet, but I still love hockey. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, until next time, uh, we really, again, appreciate you listening to us and we hope that you um, have a really great week and we'll see you uh, in a week. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 